we're going to talk retirement from a financial perspective. There's a whole lot more to retirement to think about beyond the dollars and cents, but we're just going to focus on the dollars and cents part of it today. Um, and so we'll look at um, needs, how much money do you need in retirement, and then we'll look at sources of income in retirement. Our focus on that will be looking at the CSI pension program. Um, as all of you are probably aware, that plan, we're transitioning from that type of plan to a defined contribution plan. We'll talk about that a little bit, but we'll really kind of focus on, um, because for many of you, a big bulk of your retirement is still going to be the CSI pension program. And so we'll talk about how that works in retirement, your choices, and that type of thing. Uh, this works good if we just make it informal. So if you have a question or a comment, raise your hand, just ask whatever type of thing with that. So let's look at uh, financial need. So how much money do you need in retirement? Um, different ways you can do it. One way is to look at what retiree households spend. And we have at the back a yellow page, page 25. This comes from statistics that uh, would put sort of the average household in the U.S. at just under $50,000 a year in expenses. Um, so um, just to help give some perspective on that, and you can see broken down into various categories. Uh, if you look at the bottom, the footnote on housing, housing obviously makes uh, a very big difference, whether you're a homeowner, whether you're renting, whether you have a mortgage or not. So you can see that has a big sway on a household budget uh, for that. So that's one way, but that's not overly helpful. It just does give you some perspective. Uh, second way, uh, now I'm looking at page three, uh, eight pages. Uh, a common uh, yardstick is to measure it to your income right before retirement. So you can see there, 70 to 80% replacement. So the, the concept there is whatever you were making just before retirement, go into retirement making 70 to 80% of that number. Um, the concept is you don't need as much money in retirement as when you're working. Um, probably have your house paid for. Uh, you um, don't have to save for retirement anymore. So that's sort of the concept behind it. Uh, but that can vary a lot depending on what you plan to do in retirement. Because um, you, you might be spending more money on travel or whatever, hobbies, uh, in retirement. So um, 70 to 80% for me I think is a little too low. Particularly when I'm talking to a room full of educators, because you tend to retire earlier than the average population. And the earlier you retire, the more years of retirement you have to fund. Uh, I am starting to see some studies show 90%. So they bump the range up to 90% for some. I'm seeing that more. But 70 to 80 is still sort of the common what you hear uh, with that. Um, so we'll do some modeling looking kind of at that 70 to 80% too, but depending on when you're looking to retire, that might or might not be uh, the right way to go. 
Another approach would be to look at your own budget. We put some blue sheets in the back there that can sort of help you do that, looking at uh, potential income sources, expenses, etc. Now this is only going to be helpful if you're close to retirement. If you're 40 years old, your current household budget isn't very indicative necessarily of what it's going to look like in retirement. Uh, but obviously if you're close to retirement, you have a good handle on what your household budget is. That helps you give you easier perspective on that. Uh, as you look at needs in retirement, um, two areas, uh, and, and I don't have the, the notes on that in, in writing in this, uh, but there's two areas that people, I think, um, don't have a good grasp on the impact in retirement on. Uh, the first is healthcare in retirement. When we're working, our, our employers in our schools tend to help us a lot with healthcare, and most of our schools, our employers are picking up most of the healthcare tab. Uh, but when we retire, um, we're kind of on our own. Now, some people say, well, there's Medicare. Um, and yes, there is Medicare. Some of that you have to pay for, but Medicare, there's a lot of things Medicare doesn't cover. Um, so, uh, for instance, with our, our program that we have with our insurance plan, we have a retiree insurance program. And we have a variety of plans, but we have one plan that's a, quite a comprehensive plan, uh, covers uh, a lot of things that Medicare doesn't cover. Uh, the premium on that is about $4,000 a year for a person. So in a sense, you could, if you're average, you can sort of say there's $4,000 a year of stuff that Medicare doesn't cover. Now, a caveat, that also includes dental. So those premiums include dental coverage. Uh, as well. Um, but again, once you're retired, you'll still need dental care. For Medicare, you do have to pay for part of Medicare, Medicare Part B, and that's roughly $1,600 a year to pay for Medicare Part B. So the two together are roughly $5,500 a year currently, and if you're a two-person household, $11,000. So 5500 for a one-person household or 11000 that's that's probably a whole lot more than you're paying right now uh, for health care while you're employed through a school, um, at least for most of our schools. So that's a, that's a big number. And then the trick is, what's that going to cost you over retirement? Uh, and this is another area. People don't think inflation through enough. And, Toward the end of this, I have some examples about inflation, but just talking health care. So let's just say health care goes up 5% a year. What will these numbers look like in 20 years? So let's say you're 65 now and thinking, well, I want to budget 20 years of retirement. Uh, I'll budget health care goes up 5% a year. Well, then you'll be spending 20 years out, you'll be spending 15000 for one or 30000 for two. And that's just taking today's numbers and saying, let's just assume health care goes up 5% a year. Uh, you're talking 15000 for one, 30000 for two. That's a big chunk, I'm going to guess, of any one of you, what you're sort of thinking income-wise you'll have in retirement. Uh, I also crunched the number that said, well, what if they go up 10% a year? Because we've gone through some spells where health care has been double-digit for a number of years. 
Well, if they go up 10% a year 20 years from now, we're talking 37,000 for one, 74,000 for two. Now, that's not going to be sustainable. None of us could afford 37,000 a year for health care. But I think at the other side, if I said, what do you think? Could health care average 10% a year over the next 20 years? More of you would believe that's possible. We're looking at these biological drugs, all these wonderful technologies that we're discovering, but they come at a big price. So health care and retirement, I don't think enough of us are really realizing the cost of that in retirement. It's a big number. The other area is how long you're going to live in retirement. If you're typical, you're going to live longer than you think you are. Um, a study was done a few years back, um, and it said the life expectancy of an age, someone who's 65 is age 85. So they said, what are the odds that a 65-year-old is going to live to be age 85? Well, the correct answer is 50%. It's half and half. Um, but uh, most people thought that there was only, let's see, what did they, um, they thought there was only a 25% chance. So we don't understand mortality numbers when we hear them. And the problem is we don't understand them on the wrong side. If most people thought, well, if mortality is age 85 and they thought 75% of the people did it, then then. From a financial perspective, that's a better mistake to make than to be thinking only 25% of us. The same study said, take a 65-year-old couple. What are the odds that one or both will be alive at age 97? 25% is the correct answer. People guessed way lower than that. So you look around here. One out of four of you, if you're a two-person household, are going to be trying to pay that health care bill at age 97. So I ran the numbers out 20 years, tack on 12 more years. Scary stuff. But it's just taking today's numbers and taking today's mortality tables and saying if healthcare goes up 5% a year, that's the reality. We have older people from our school systems that have a hard time paying for their healthcare, getting their prescriptions filled. Um, but many of you will be looking at a 30-year retirement. Try to remember back what things cost 30 years ago. A lot different than today. Okay, that's the doom and gloom part. <laughs> Let's go to Ingo. That's more fun. Social Security. Younger ones are saying, well, let's skip Social Security because it's not going to be around when I get there. Um, it will be around when you get there. Um, for most Americans, the bulk of their retirement is going to be Social Security. As a nation, we cannot just say we can't afford Social Security because we would have masses of people in poverty and we'd have to do something to take care of them. So Social Security is that program that we have to take care of each other. Uh, it cannot go away. We have to find a way uh, 
to provide some type of income in retirement. It's based on how much you work. Uh, for those of you, um, they used to send statements on a regular basis, but they've stopped that. But you can go to the Social Security website. Um, it's called, there's a, uh, well, to go direct, it'd be socialsecurity.gov slash my statement. And you can sign in, get an account, and you can see your Social Security information. Very, very helpful information. It's a very handy website. One of the things you want to make sure you do is to make sure all your earnings are getting posted to your account. It's not uncommon for people to go out and look and see that some of their earnings are missing. And that's going to affect your benefit. You can get it corrected, uh, but you want to make sure you get it corrected because it will impact your earnings. So make sure you go out on a regular basis and make sure all your earnings are getting posted correctly for you. And then there you can see what your retirement projections are. Uh, we have a table on page 12 in your handout that gives you some rough estimates. Um, looking at year of birth, left column, we've got some salary amounts across the top, and you can kind of run the lines together uh, to see some ballpark, what Social Security benefits are for that. But again, it's, it would be better if you would go to the Social Security website yourself and see for you what it is. They do have some retirement estimators on there that you could uh, do some projections of what your Social Security might look like. But I uh, would encourage you to look at that. One of the valuable things about Social Security is that it has increases every year to help offset inflation. I don't think it will keep up with retiree inflation. Um, they've made some adjustments to the inflation increases that make the increases lower. Um, and then that's part of trying to pay for all of this. So it does go up some, but I don't think it's going to keep up with necessarily retiree household inflation. Um, but obviously, it's a very helpful tool to have your income increasing. In theory, if when you start at retirement, you have enough money, and every year your income goes up with whatever your expenses go up by, that makes planning for retirement really easy. Um, so it's a very valuable feature to have. Uh, one of the big things to think about with Social Security is when to start it. Um, the prevailing wisdom used to be started as soon as possible. Um, and I always thought, that doesn't make sense to me. Because in retirement, your challenge from, again, we're talking retirement from a financial perspective. That's our focus in this one. The challenge in retirement from a financial perspective is making sure you have enough money. You're that 97-year-old trying to pay the health care bill. Um, and so if you delay taking your Social Security, it goes up. If you start it before age 65, it's decreased. If you delay it beyond your, well, it's at real, really your full retirement date, if you start it early, it's decreased. Um, but if you delay it, it's increased. It's increased about 8% a year. So if you delay it, that doesn't mean you have to keep working. But just because you stop working doesn't mean you have to start your Social Security benefit. 
Now, what I hear people say is, well, yeah, but what happens if I don't start it early and I die at 72? And I say, it's not going to bother you a bit. <laughs> and it usually takes people a moment, and then they're like, oh, yeah, it won't bother me. But then I say, what do you think? You, you, so you started at 64 years old, and now you're that 97-year-old trying to pay the health care bill. Are you going to regret starting your Social Security at 64? Probably. Um, I really would encourage people to look at delaying Social Security till age, age 70 would be currently when the increases stop. But really give thought to what about having some savings that you would live off until age 70 and then start your Social Security. Because that's going to increase your Social Security benefit 20 to 30%. And then that's going to go up with cost of living. So it's a very powerful benefit to try to get it to be as big a number as you can with that. It used to be it was sort of like have some savings for way down the road when inflation starts taking effect and then use your savings. But I think there's some value in having some savings to be able to spend to delay taking Social Security. So give thought to that concept because I think that's a key factor protect, protecting the one in four of you that are going to be that 97-year-old for that. Yeah? Can they pick specific quarters? Like, say, you work 40 years, and in your, 30, in your 20 to 30 years, you made more than in your 30 to 40-year uh, career. So would they take the most recent years, or can the quarters come? Are they, how do they determine? Social the Security, the benefit that you earn is based on your career. Um, and it, 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 I forget the exact number of years, but it, it really almost looks at your entire career. It's not like, it's not like the last five years or something. It's, it's a much longer career horizon that it looks at to determine your benefit. I think it's 30 years, but I'm not quite sure. 35. Okay. So it really encompasses most of your career with that. Yeah. I was born after 1960, and so this age is 67 on this chart. So if I start with Social Security at 67, I get the normal amount. If I increase every year after 67, I add 8%, up to age 72 then? Um, I think it's age, so persons, their normal Social Security age is 67 for them. Uh, starting it before then, it's going to be reduced. Uh, if you delay it, it's increased, but I, I can't remember if it stops at age 70, the increases. Um, I think it stops at age 70, the increases. So then I can only increase it by three years at 8%, as opposed to someone older to increase four years at 8%. Yes, so if, if versus someone who's 66 could get four years of increases versus, yes. Um, and those increases are actuarially equivalent. So there, there's no subsidies, no whatever. It's just, it's just all, and the decreases are also actuarially equivalent, meaning one's not a better value than another. They're all worth the same. Now, obviously, for how long you end up drawing the benefit, what at the end, say what strategy is better, whether you start early or delay late. 
Uh, but since you don't know that, the thing to consider is, again, you're trying to provide income for life, but we don't know how long our life is. Um, but many of us are going to be living into our 90s. So as a practical matter, we have to plan for income into our 90s. Say one of your goals is to uh, leave money at your departure, <laughs> and uh, so that it can benefit institutions or people or other things. If you take Social Security, if you if you have a savings and you use that right away, that's diminished. Your pension uh, goes away if you pass, and also social your Social Security, correct? Yes. Yes. So the comment was, well, what if you want to leave money behind for people, charities, whatever? Um, I'm not factoring that into the equation. Um, that would all be add-on. CSI pension. Um, yeah. I just want to say is because um, I read a lot about retirement because I'm close. Without exception, every single one advises if you can swing it, wait till 70 before you collect Social Security. Take advantage of the 8% bump. Today in 66, you get 8% more for four years, but it is without exception, everyone says, wait till 70 if you can. Yeah, that's becoming more and more sort of the prevailing viewpoint. Um, on that, uh, again, trying to provide for that income for life um, and recognizing that many of us are going to live into our 90s. Yeah. CSI pension. Uh, CSI pension is a, uh, a plan where it provides benefit for life. So you'll get a monthly benefit, and that monthly benefit will be payable until your death. There are different payout options. We'll talk about those in just a minute. But just the basic concept is you're earning a benefit. Um, it'll start getting paid, and it'll be paid for life. Uh, so let's say you retire, and you start. You get a benefit that's $2,000 a month. You're now 97 years old. It's still $2,000 a month. That benefit will not change. Okay? So there's no, like, Social Security goes up. CSI pension does not go up. So another strategy to think about is having some savings and giving yourself a raise every year from your savings. So your CSI pension is $2,000 a month. You're a year into retirement. Your bills have gone up because of inflation. We're going to just keep sending you $2,000 a month. But you could give yourself a 2%, a 3% raise on your $2,000 from savings. So one of the things to think about savings would be that. So for me, with what I'm doing personally, I've got sort of different savings buckets that I've thought through. And one of my savings buckets is I've projected what my CSI pension will be. And then I've said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to budget that inflation is 4% a year, and I want to be able to give myself a 4% raise for 30 years. Okay? So I'm 
I'm budgeting to have enough savings when I retire that that saving pool could give myself, my CSI pension, a 4% raise for 30 years. Okay, that's just what I chose to do. I'm more of a conservative person, so I went with 4% inflation, even though it's been averaging 2% um, type of thing. I budgeted 30 years for retirement. Uh, but that's, that's a concept to give thought to inflation, or for savings, to give your CSI pension a raise every year for that. Other features of the pension, but I'm, I'm going to move on because I want to focus on your benefit payouts and that type of thing. So we're going to kind of build some numbers, and feel free, again, ask questions, jump in with comments as we're going here. So looking at page 8. So I want to pull some stuff together for you. So we're going to look at six different examples, three people are single, three people married, and figure out what do they need beyond Social Security. We're going to use that 70 to 80% range, but again, I don't think 70 to 80% is a good target, but depending on how long you work, it could be a good target, but because it's sort of the rule of thumb, we've used that in this presentation. As you can see, the concept is the lower the wage, we use the 80%, a higher wage earner, we use the 70%, and again, the concept is you know, everybody sort of has to buy groceries, pay the electric bill, whatever. So those will make up a larger percent of household income um, than if income is higher. Um, so that's sort of the general, there's sort of the concept, there's some basic living expenses that you just sort of have. So the lower your income, the bigger percent of your, your income those make up. That's why you see the 80 to 70 in that concept. But if you look at the bottom line, um, what this is saying is that if you look at the single, they need about 44%, 45% of their final pay to hit that 70 to 80% target. If you look at the married, it drops down to more the 30% range. Now in this example, we are, assume, we are assuming that the married household, that the spouse had no income, and the spouse is receiving the Social Security survivor, or, or it's the spousal benefit, which is half of what the employee's Social Security is. So that's the concept we put in the married. The only thing different between the single and the married is that under the married, there's a spouse getting 50% of what the Social Security is that the employee is getting. But because of that, you can see they need less, a lower replacement ratio. So now let's go look at some participants in our plan. So page nine, these are actual participants in our plan. Uh, a couple caveats. Uh, at retirement, these people are gonna have about 40 years in the plan. Now these are people that have been more around our 3% level in the plan. Um, and then you can see the bottom line shows what their pension is compared to their income. And you can see it's in the low 40 range, 35 to 45-ish percent. 
So again, keeping in mind the previous page, showing that those single people needed 45-ish percent to hit the 70 to 80% target, married even lower. Between CSI pension and Social Security, these people would be hitting that 70 to 80% target without needing personal savings immediately uh, with that. On the next page, we have some additional people. These are folk that have been in the higher level plans within the CSI program, more at the 5% kind of level. Again, big caveat, these are people with like 40 years in the plan. Many people don't get 40 years in our plan. Uh, so we're looking at sort of the, you know, the, the high end here, but you can see replacements of around 60%. Well, some of these people between Social Security and CSI pension are going to be in the 90 to 100% range. So if 70 to 80% is adequate, these people are in good shape. They theoretically won't even have to spend all of their income in their early years of retirement. So that lessens the savings need for these people. It doesn't eliminate it, um, but it, it lessens it. Now, as you know, the CSI pension, we're transitioning from what's called a defined benefit to the defined contribution world. Uh, so some of you are close to retirement, so the bulk of your income from work is going to be CSI pension. Some of you are younger um, and the defined contribution is going to start playing a bigger role. Um, I'll be transitioning this presentation to sort of incorporate more of the defined contribution concept because that's, that's the world that we need to start planning under now within our schools. Um, I can say this, the younger you are, the easier this transition will be, but the older you are, the more painful this transition is going to be. Um, if you're 55 years old and you want to replace what the CSI pension would have provided you at age 65, we'll just say, you're going to have to personally save twice as much as what was being put into the CSI pension for you. So let's say your school is at the 5% plan. 10% of pay was going into our plan. So let's say you're 55 at the hard freeze, which is at the end of the school year, and you've got 10 years to go. Instead of saving 10%, you're going to have to save about 20% to replace what the CSI pension would have provided you. Now that's just a rough ballpark, but you need to know that the closer you are to retirement, the more you have to save to make up for what the CSI pension would have provided you. So you don't, the, the, the message I guess is don't just think CSI pension's going away, I was having 10% of pay going into that, so I'll make sure I have 10% going into defined contribution, and we'll be fine. That's not the reality. You need to save a lot more switching to the defined contribution world. Yeah? Will CSI provide a chart like that that explains if you're 45, 55, uh, 
how much you should put into a retirement plan to maximize what you're missing? Um, at CSI, we're developing a, a defined contribution plan. Um, whether or not your school chooses to use it or not, but, but part of that will be helping people know how much to save. Um, the, the trick is it's going to be based on a lot of different assumptions, um, and you are the one who will have to decide on what those assumptions are. In other words, you have to decide how aggressively or conservatively am I going to invest the money, and then what is the expected return of that choice I make? Um, type of thing. So it's it's not a simple answer um, on that. But we, and I know in our plan, we will have tools to try to help people know how much to save. Um, you know, the the general thinking is that if you start a career with a defined contribution plan in your twenties. The prevailing thing is you need to be saving 12 to 15 percent of pay over your career. <coughs> However, the, the the nature of pension plans and how your benefits accrue, if if you're if you're going to try to replace from age 55 to 65 concept, um, looking at how our pension plan was structured, ballpark you got to save twice as much as what was going to be going into the pension plan over those next 10 years to duplicate what the pension was going to provide you um, with that. So I, my, my, my key here is I just want you to just in your head know that you can't put the same amount of money in the next 10 years and get the same what you would have received. It is going to be significantly different. Um, but for each one of you, it varies because it depends. The big thing is how are you going to invest that money? Yeah. I know there's different things going on with the pension plan. I don't know how much of this you can answer. But when we look at these numbers, it's like I've spent my entire career planning on this. Is there any way these pension monies will not be there for us? So the question is, could this pension money disappear? What you've earned into the... So the plan's going to be hard frozen August 31 of 19. No new benefits will accrue. So whatever you have on that date, could it go down or go away? Uh, short answer for most of you is no. Uh, reason being is the plan is protected by a government insurance agency called the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. And if for some reason we as a family of schools can't afford the plan, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corp would take it over and they would send you your pension. Now, there are some caveats on that around some of the higher pension earners. There's, they, they only do it to certain maximum. Some people who are invested wouldn't get money. So there, there's some caveats around it, but by and large, when I look around this room, Generally speaking, all of you, your pension's guaranteed through the government. Now, that's also one of the reasons we had to hard freeze the plan. Those premiums we have to pay 10 years ago were $300,000 a year. In June, I wrote a check for $7 million. 
those premiums have just killed the plan. We, we can't afford those. Now, legislatively, we're working on getting it fixed, and we, we have broad support in Congress to fix it and get them back to $300,000, but we're not there yet. But regardless, the decision to hard freeze has been made, um, but there is that protection. Yeah? But it's true that the government pension, insurance, protection, whatever, that they would have to go after the assets of these schools first. Yes. And if, so if the school is unable to afford the legacy costs, and they say we can't do this anymore, does that school itself then go into receivership by the government insurance pension people? Um, it, 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 it's the whole plan or none of the plan. So all the schools would sort of have to say, we can't afford this. It's not a school-by-school school thing, because so it's one plan. Do you know what happened if the school did say, humble? Um, then they, they, they have to pay. The trustees have to collect. Um, so I guess theoretically it could put a school out of business. What happens if twenty percent of the schools say I can't pay? Does that whole bill go to the rest of the eighty percent then of the increased cost distributed that way? And then twenty percent of the schools say I can't do it, does it really tank everybody? Um, it would it, it's one plan. Right. So whether it goes to the pension benefit is the whole plan goes or none of it. Right. So, so if a school says we can't pay, the the trustees have to collect. I mean, it, it's a it's a legal obligation to pay. Right. So if you say you can't, you really can't, and that could mean then that you have to terminate participation in the plan, which triggers a withdrawal liability. That must be paid. And, and, and the courts would deem that school, you have to pay it. Um, so it, 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 it depends then what that school ends up paying as to what the remaining schools have to pick up or not pick up. Right, so the remaining obligation then gets distributed over the remaining schools until no one can pay, right? If, if there would be that. Okay. Now, schools, many of our schools have real estate that's worth some money. So on average, I'm not sure how much would be left going to other schools. Moving forward, yes. you said legislation, if it would ever go back to the $300,000 premiums, would we jump back into this? Or are we done with this completely? So the question is, would we ever go back to the defined benefit plan, would we resurrect it? Um, theoretically could. My guess is we would not. Now, where, where, I, where I could see we would, in Canada, we run a plan for our schools in Canada. Our school in Canada is much like this one, with one difference. We can reduce everybody's benefit if we want. <laughs> Okay, now you might say, well, that's bad. Okay, but let's go to the defined contribution world that we're moving to. Yesterday, 
everybody's defined contribution plan was reduced. So in Canada, why, why not reduce benefits if need be? In the U.S., our only lever was put more money in the plan. That's it. Only lever. In Canada, we can put more money in the plan, or we can reduce what everybody is owed, which is what a defined contribution is, in essence. But in Canada, we've never had to reduce the benefits in Canada, but it's a, it's a more sharing of the risk. So it wouldn't surprise me if someday the U.S. adopts the Canadian model that allows a pension plan to also reduce benefits. If that were to happen, it wouldn't surprise me if we resurrect this plan. Because as much as we want to go to the defined contribution world, that's not a, that's not a great solution, really. Because our schools, 30 years from now, are going to have people that they wish would retire who cannot afford to retire. It's going to be messy. It's going to take a while to show up, but it is going to be messy. Um, and there's going to be some real sad stories. And so the more we start seeing the pain of defined contribution, if this legislation would move to the U.S., I could see us maybe resurrect this plan. But that will be, I won't be here to see that. Uh, do you encourage us one time to write our Congress about the PBC agreement? Yes. Then you said us, no, you must have stopped writing. Yes. Can you speak to that? Yeah, so we're trying to fix this PBGC premium. Um, and so every so often you might get an email from your head of school that we sent to say, hey, tell your people, write your congressman. And we're trying to make it really simple. A little website you go, you click, fill out a few things. If we do that, please do it. This is not just a, like, well, let's just throw everything and see what makes a difference. Congressman hearing from you is a very powerful tool. So when you get that, don't be thinking, well, it's just one person, why should I bother? This really makes a difference. So why did we send it and then say, why hold off? Well, it's politics. And politics, I don't know how you teach legislation happening in your schools, but you're not teaching it right. It's not the way it works. It's a messy business. Um, money talks. It really, I've, I've learned this over the last half a dozen years. Um, there is truth that the people who donate and have the lobbyists and it, money talks. It's not one person, one vote. It's more one dollar gets the attention, and if you got lots of dollars, you get more attention. It's, it's just the reality of it, uh, is what I've come to see. Um, so we were getting legislation and we were getting momentum and we were trying to get into a bill, tax reform 2.0. And so, and this stuff happens quick sometimes and this was happening quick. So the word we got was we need to flood our congressman because it was the house that was where it was shaky. So we sent it out. Well, then the talks went bad in Congress and it was like, okay, stop because it's not going to do any good anymore. And so that's why we came out and said stop. So it's a, it's a fluid kind of thing. But if you do get the request, please jump in and do it. Because 
it's, it's a powerful motivator for them to hear from their constituents. Uh, it has a big impact. Okay, we're going to early retirement. Um, I'm going to skip early retirement. It's on page really 14. Uh, the point I'm making with early retirement is the CSI plan does some help for early retirement. Um, benefits that you earned um, before 2005, you could start them as early as age 62 without reduction. Um, benefits after that would be reduced for starting early. Um, and so we're just trying to make the point, even if you retire early, the CSI pension plan will help you be able to afford to do that a bit, but there's still a price tag with it. And in that example, we assumed you started your Social Security early um, uh, and started your, your pensions at 62 with reductions, etc. cetera. Um, but for the sake of time, I'm not gonna dive into that. One of the things I do strongly encourage you though, is go on to our website and run retirement projections or ask Brenda Addy to. Brenda is right around the corner. Brenda's right here, actually. Stick your hand up, Brenda. There's Brenda. Brenda does our day-to-day -day on the CSI pension, and we want you to have retirement projections. So you can email Brenda. Brenda's got her laptop right around the corner here. She can do projections for you right now. And so we'll email them to you so you have them. Um, but do retirement projections so you know what your CSI pension looks like. We want you to have that information. We're going to talk in just a moment now about when you retire, you got lots of choices. All of those choices are calculated out for you on those retirement projections. So you can see the specific dollars and cents to you personally uh, of the benefit that you've earned, and your choices at retirement. So please do that, or have us do that. So your choices at retirement, page 15. The benefit that you have, one is the pension formula, when I said someone got 2,000 a month, the pension formula, the pension formula is a benefit for your lifetime that ends at death. Okay, that's the standard pension formula. It's called a single life benefit. But you can take it in different ways. Okay, at the bottom of the page there, you can see this period certain on life factor. Okay, what that really means is you're getting a benefit for your life, but you buy a guaranteed number of years. So you can buy a 10 year guarantee. So if you're 65 years old at retirement and you want to buy you want to get a benefit for your lifetime to buy a 10-year guarantee, you have to pay a little bit for it. So instead of getting $1,000, we'd give you $970.70. So that $30 reduction bought you a 10-year guarantee. So you buy the 10-year guarantee, you live eight years, we'll pay two more years to your beneficiary until 10 years have been paid and then benefits stop. Let's say you do the single life with a 10-year guarantee and you live 30 years. Benefits will stop at death because you've gotten at least 10 years. Okay? So single life, and then you can do a single life with 5 or 10 year guaranteed benefit. Now, where it gets harder to decide is when you have a spouse. Okay, and that's where the table up above, surviving spouse contingent annuity, 
So you can have a choice that your spouse would get 50% of what you were getting at your death, 75% or 100%. Now we'll talk about it in a minute, just well, how would you know which one to choose. But your benefit will be reduced based on what you select. Now in this example, we're assuming that someone's 65 and the spouse is eight years younger, so they're 57, and they chose the 75%. So you can see that factor of 0.8779 there right in the middle of that table. Okay, now let's go to the top of the next page because then we'll show you kind of how the math works. So let's assume someone's benefits $1,000 a month and they spouse is eight years younger, they're 65, so that factor is um, 0.8779 at the 75%. So instead of getting $1,000, they're going to get $878 a month. Okay, so that's the price, the difference between 1000 and 878 is the price they paid to have it paid over two lifetimes at the 75%. At their death, the spouse would start receiving 75% of 878. Now, continuing on, you can see we have this, let's see, pop-up. If you look at the factor, it gets a little bit different. So it's 8713 for the same example. So instead of getting $878, they're going to get $871. Well, what did that pop-up do? But what did they what did they get for that price? As we said, at your death, if the spouse is still alive, they get X percent of whatever you chose. If you buy the pop-up and your spouse dies before you, your benefit pops up to that thousand dollars. If you don't buy the pop-up and your spouse dies before you, your benefit will stay $878 in this example at the top of the page. So that's another little tweak is this pop-up. And again, this will be on your retirement projections that you get from us or you go run yourself. You'll see your benefit. You'll see what your pop-up would be. But again, the difference is if your spouse dies before you, then your benefit pops up to that single life benefit. Okay? Now, how do you know which one to choose? You have a spouse, 50, 75, 100. Well, you don't have to make this choice until retirement, first of all. So you don't have to figure it out today, so to speak. It's at retirement. What we tell people to do is set the CSI pension aside as you're looking at retirement and think husband, wife, income, and expenses. So think, okay, husband first, what happens if husband dies? What happens to household income? Maybe there's a life insurance policy that's paid that makes it go up. Um, and then think, if husband dies first, what happens to expenses? Does anything change? You go from two cars to one car. Maybe if he's not around, you can spend all that money that you were hoping to spend and you want to let you, so expenses go up. Um, what happens to household expenses if the husband dies first? And then say, okay, now let's think if wife dies first. What happens to household income? Does anything change? Go to expenses. If wife dies first, what happens to household expenses? Does anything change? Well, if you'd say, you know what? No matter who dies first, 
nothing changes on the income side. And no matter who dies first, nothing changes on expenses. Well, they can want to choose the 100% survivor benefit because what you're saying, the household's going to need the same amount of money no matter who dies first. But likely you're going to say expenses are going to go down, which would warrant that you don't need the same amount of money. So maybe the 75% makes sense. Maybe the 50% would make sense. Again, you're doing this right at retirement. Now, we have married people take the single life benefit. Before you get too many IDs, your spouse has to sign off on it. You don't get to make the choice by yourself. So you might say, well, wait a minute. Why would a spouse sign off that they're going to get nothing at your death? Well, we're about 70-plus percent female participation in this plan. Many of our females are only going to have 20 or 25 years in this plan. They took time out raising kids, whatever, so they have fewer years in the pension. Husband had a pretty decent career, and the husband says, Honey, odds are you're going to outlive me. I want to make sure you're well taken care of. I don't need the CSI pension. So you take the single life benefit because I just want to make sure you're well taken care of. We get a fair bit of that. So even married people may take the single life benefit, but you both have to sign off on it. Um, before we can do that. So understand the choice, different choices and how that might work. Okay, page 17, I want to talk about two-stage quickly. And this is for those of you that want to retire before age 65. Your benefit that is not reduced for early retirement, so that's benefit earned before 2005, you can start it at age 62. The benefit you earned after 2005 that would be reduced, you can delay and start that at 65. Okay? So you can, you can phase in. So this is for those of you who want to start your benefit before age 65. You can start the unreduced part early, and then at 65 start the remainder. I do want to mention under a hard-frozen plan, none of the rules of the plan change. So one, people who are not vested will continue their investing service. So next, at the end of this school year, if someone has three years in the plan, takes five years to be vested, vested means you qualify for that pension. As long as they stay working at a school in the plan, they continue their investing service. As long as you're active and working more than half time, you cannot start your pension. That's none of that's changing. All the rules of the plan stay the same. Okay? And that also means if you retire and then go back to work more than 50% or to CSI school, your pension will be suspended. That rule doesn't go away either. All the rules of the plan stay the same. There's just no ben new benefit of the rules. Yep? I've always been curious. You and I will be dead. But let's say that there's this Miss Sweetwater and you've got three years in her pension and she is the last one, like, you know, so she retires at age 55, many years from now, and she gets her, in today's dollars, 80 bucks a month or something, or whatever it is. But when the last person dies, and there's this money, let's say it's $200 million, or $100 million, or $500, whatever. I'm just curious, like, what happens to that now? 
Um, I think what would happen is before we got to that point, we would pay an insurance company to take the risk and the remainder on. So at some point, insurance companies charge a high price to do this. Okay? Um, and, and, and that's the, for your, for your, I don't know if any of you are heads of schools, but there's this withdrawal liability that, that, that schools would have to pay if they leave. That's really the price an insurance company would charge to take this plan over. Because that's the ultimate way to de-risk it. Hand it to someone else. Well, the price tag to do that is high, but at some point with this plan, likely, the, the surplus in it would be enough that an insurance company would say, for the amount of money you have, we will take over that risk. And so we would pay them to take it over. So I don't think we'll get to that scenario you mapped out. We would pay an insurance company to take it over when those dollars would line up with their price tag. Yes? I have a question. You know, I emailed you a couple times about letting retirees between the age of 45 and 65 additional years, like they do in a public school. Could Christian school, is it because we can't do it legally or we don't want to do it, but we would put a price tag on one year and say, hey, before it closes, you can buy five years and then boost your pension up. That would be a great way for you guys to help us in the middle where we're getting really hammered here. Um, anybody under the age of 45 can go into a new Roth or IRA, turn the page, hit the redial, and move forward. But it's us folks between 45 and 60 that are getting hammered. You know, you can try the Rule 72 and the fact that we, you know, if you get some money, you can. But we don't have enough time left for all that. I would still encourage CSI to let us buy additional. Put a price tag on it so that you could retire. If you have 34 in, when it closes, you can buy five years and, and have a retirement base at 39. Yeah, the, 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 the quick answer is it's not going to happen because it would put, it would add risk to the plan, and the message loud and clear from our schools is we want no more risk. So I. Explain the risk part to me, I don't get it. Uh, well, so if we do that, we have to earn 7.5% on the money because that's how the plan is structured. And our schools say, we don't want the risk of having to earn 7.5%. So the schools would say, don't add to the risk. It's just, it's, it, it's, it's our world today. Sure, that'd be a nice gesture for all us folks. I, I agree. I agree. Was there a just a quick question to make sure I understand. For early retirement, it is possible to take the funds earned prior to 2005 without being reduced. And then you can still work at a CSI school as long as you are under 50%. Yeah, the question is, can you start that unreduced at 62 or 63 or 64 while working at a CSI school less than 50%? And the answer is yes. Yes, if you're working less than 50%, you can start your pension. Whether that's at age 67 or 55, you can start at early 55, then it'd be reduced, obviously. Our time is up. I'm going to stick around if you have any other questions, but thank you. Thank you.